Well, good morning, South Bay. Um, Thanks for joining us this morning, wherever you're joining us from, your living room, your kitchen, your den, wherever it might be. We're glad that you're watching and worshiping with us. I don't know about you, but repentance hasn't exactly been on the forefront of my mind over the past week, week and a half. It seems like everything else has, though. We have been studying repentance, however, and we will continue this morning by looking at another prayer of repentance from Scripture, this time from Daniel. And the reason I thought we should continue our series is because in looking at Daniel's prayer, I think it gives us an idea, an opening into a response to the dark days that we live in that we maybe haven't thought about, something that is new, something that is unique. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 9. The whole section is verses 1 through 19, and I'm going to be reading specific verses of those, and I'll help you follow along as we read together. Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Verse 8, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. And we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. God, this morning as we gather together in our homes, separate physically, but joined together by your word, I thank you that your faithfulness is the rock that we stand on, knowing that you unite us to each other by uniting us to yourself. I pray this morning that you would help us see these words that you gave your servant Daniel hundreds of years ago are for us. Through the power of the Spirit at work within us, you are speaking to us through your word. Help us to hear it. Help us to believe the gospel contained herein and to be changed by it. I pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. 
And I pray this in the mighty and powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, it has been an incredibly odd and difficult week or week and a half, couple of weeks, hasn't it? But it hasn't all been bad news. I don't know if you saw uh, these recent reports about how the quarantine and shelter-in-place restrictions have begun to affect the environment positively. I I saw these pictures go up on social media, and then the stories went viral. Two stories out of Venice, Italy. One, that the canals are becoming so clear because there's fewer tourists, fewer visitors, that dolphins have started coming back in. To the canals. And on top of that, there are these swans now swimming through the Venetian waterways that haven't been there in years. Also, out of Yunnan, China, a small village experienced these elephants trampling through the center of the village because there were no humans around. They weren't scared. They stumbled into some fermenting corn, got drunk, and passed out in a tea garden. And these stories gained such a following because it was some hope, some positive storylines coming out of the chaos and the control that has been imposed upon humanity, right? Like a silver lining in the midst of the crazy and terrible world. And that's why it has gained such popularity. Well, National Geographic published an article on Friday that could have been headlined no silver lining for you. It's said that these viral, environmentally uplifting stories are bogus. They are completely fake. The dolphins that were seen swimming through the canals, they were photos taken from a port in Sardinia, which is on the opposite side of Italy on the Mediterranean Sea. The swans that were there, well, they actually live in a small uh, island community in the center of Venice, and they never leave. They're always there. Yunnan, China did have some elephants trample through a village, but they always come through the village. It's part of their moving patterns throughout the area, and they didn't get into any corn at all. They don't even know where that photo came from. Fake news is everywhere. And unfortunately, because we're all on social media and on the internet and watching the news to get updates on the outside world, it seems like we're inundated with such fake news more often these days. And the problem is, when you see a story like these, you get your hopes up. Something good is happening. Or maybe it's a story about how more governors are implementing the shelter-in-place policies, that infection rates are going down, that we are actually flattening the curve. And it gets our hopes up, only to hear the truth come out. And all of a sudden, your heart's broken. Your hope is shattered. And what happens is, if that happens enough, you approach the next hopeful story a little less hopeful, a little more skeptical. And time again and time again, what happens is you begin to withdraw emotionally from what's going on in the world. Or you respond hyper-emotionally, losing sense of all reality. This type of getting your hopes up only to have them shattered makes you callous towards everything around you. We see something different from Daniel Daniel's hope is grounded in certainty, and that allows him to engage emotionally with the dark reality that is going on all around him. Daniel was a young man when the king of Babylon exported him and all the other promising young men out of Judah, and he served the Babylonian royalty for 70 years 
And then change came. The Persians came in and took over Babylon, but Daniel's status as a servant remained. In the midst of such a change, though, even though he was in his mid-80s, Daniel was moved to the heart in longing to see God's favor return to his people, in order to see God's people returned to their homeland, to Jerusalem, where God had promised to dwell with his people, people, Daniel is moved to repentance. And he writes down this prayer of repentance. It's actually an incredibly long prayer. I mean, so long that I had to cut some of the verses out so that you didn't glaze over like the donut you had for breakfast. Why would you write such a long prayer down unless you intended to refer to it later? Or you hoped that the people you knew, the other people, your people, the people of Israel, would refer to it later. Or maybe in the hopes that God's people throughout generations would refer back to it. Why? Why would God's people look to this prayer? Well, like Nehemiah's prayer, it contains some ideas of corporate confession about the sins of Israel. But I think what we see in Daniel's prayer is that Daniel is addressing past present, and future ideas. He's connecting God's people throughout generations. Now, I know what you're saying to yourself. Past, present, and future, that's got to be Stephen's three points. He always does this to us. But listen, surprise, we're only going to be talking about two of them this morning. We're going to be talking about what Daniel says about the future and what Daniel says about his present. As we read Daniel's prayer, Uh, It's a prayer of repentance to God, but it contains some strong encouragements for us today. Daniel says, hope in the not yet, but be broken by the now. Those are our two points this morning, hope in the not yet and be broken by the now. Daniel's prayer, everything starts by hoping in the not yet. The not yet, what does that even mean? Stephen, why aren't you just saying the word future? Are you just trying to show off? Well, no, not really. I think that when we say the word future, it implies this sense of mystical unknown, the the events that have yet to be written because we don't know what's coming. And instead, using the term not yet gives some certainty to the events that we're talking about, that there is a story that will be played out. It just hasn't happened yet. And it's this level of certainty that brings Daniel to this point in his life. See, Daniel is reading the prophet Jeremiah, who wrote his prophecy at least 100 years before Daniel is reading it. Verse 2 tells us that while reading Jeremiah, Daniel understands that Babylon's dominance over Jerusalem will only last 70 years. It's most likely that Daniel is reading Jeremiah 29, verse 10, which says this, "'For thus says the Lord,' When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Jeremiah's prophecy tells Israel, God's people, and Judah, the southern kingdom, that God had ordained for Babylon to come in, destroy them, and take the people as exiles. But God had also ordained that exile to only last 70 years, and then he would bring his people back, back to Jerusalem, back into their land. Those are words of certainty, but they haven't happened yet, 
right? Daniel sees that these are certain, and he sees that the time is coming. Babylon was just overthrown, and it's been about 70 years since he was taken captive. God, uh, God has told Daniel and all of his people he's going to bring their captivity to an end. It will happen. It just hasn't happened yet. This is the, what, the way we should hope. Our hope should be put on things that are certain. Let me tell you what I was hoping for today. When I got to the church today, I was tired. It's been a long week. We've all had a long week. I was hoping that there would be a coffee waiting for me. And not just any coffee, but a cortado. I was really craving that great mixture of bitter espresso and and creamy milk. I walked into my office and, surprise, it wasn't there. But I was still hoping for it. Now, that seems pretty odd and incredibly specific and honestly, somewhat silly, except for the fact that I was hoping in something certain. Because Wilson had called me and said, behold, I am running to Barefoot Coffee. Relay to me your coffee order and I shall bring it back to you. Or, you know, something along those lines. I was hoping in the certainty that he would fulfill his promise. And he did, thankfully. That's why I'm able to stand and talk to you right now. Our hope should be founded in something certain. But let's be honest with each other. What are you hoping in right now? What is your hope in today? For the last couple of weeks, my hope has really been in good scheduling and family buy-in. Like, if we can just have a good day planned out, if we can move from one event to the next event, one lesson to the next lesson, if we have a goal to work towards at the end of the day, like a movie night or ice cream, that, that gives me hope that we'll make it, we'll have a good day, right? We'll make it through the week that, that we'll be okay. And if everybody in the family can just do their part, if the girls can just listen, if Nicole and I can figure out the schedule of who's working when and who's with the girls when, if we can all just band together, it gives me hope that we're going to be okay, that we're going to get through this. And really, as, even as I'm saying it, it's not scheduling and family buy-in, it's order, it's, it's control. My hope is in control, that if I can control enough, we'll be okay. Now, control might bring certainty a little bit, but eventually it will become obvious that I can't control everything, right? I can't control the attitudes of my girls when they wake up in the morning, how tired they are. I can't control how being cooped up in the house by the containment initiative and also the cold and rainy weather will impact me, much less how it will impact Nicole or it will impact Michaela or Margaret. I can't control those things. So why am I hoping in control? Why is my hope in something that is so uncertain? Or maybe the opposite question is appropriate. What is certain enough for us to hope in? What is there that we could put our hope in as certain as Daniel? Well, it leads me to think about the book of Revelation. God reveals to the apostle John, and in some level of prophecy, what will happen at the end of all things. And in Revelation 21, verses 3 through 5, this is what John communicates. Chapter 21, verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Certainty, these things will happen. They've just not come to pass yet. What we see is that certainty leads Daniel to cry out to God, to petition him with vigor. Verse 16, Daniel says, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill. He knows what God will do, and he prays that God will do it right now. We, too, should be praying vigorously for God to make all things new right now to rid this place of death and sorrow and mourning and tears right now, for God to make this his dwelling place. We should hope in what we know is certain. But Daniel also shows us, while we hope for the not yet, we should also be broken by the now. And that's our second point, be broken by the now. Daniel is fully aware of what God is going to do, and he is comparing what he is sitting in to this glorious future, and he is disappointed, to say the least, upset, sad. He knows that the the current state of his people comes to them because of their own sin. They deserved it, and so that moves Daniel to confess to confess his sins and the sins of his people, and it makes up a majority of his prayer. Listen to verse 5. Daniel says, We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. That's a lot of confession. Those are all different words of things that they've done wrong in the past. But there is more to Daniel's brokenness than the past sins of Israel. It's the fact that the calamity, the chaos, the darkness, the dryness that their past sins have brought upon them hasn't done anything to their heart, to Daniel's heart or the heart of his people. That's what he says is the biggest concern for him in verse 13. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. What Daniel is saying is very simple. The punishment hasn't affected us. We are experiencing the suffering that our sins deserved, and yet we don't care. We haven't done anything about it. It reminds me of this scene from the movie Hotel Rwanda, which, if you haven't seen it, is based on actual events that took place in the African nation of Rwanda in the early 1990s, where there was a genocide. And in the film, some Western journalists capture on video some of the earliest violence uh, of the genocide. And they're watching the film back at this hotel, um, and the manager of the hotel sees it through an opening in the window. And the journalist apologizes, says, I'm so sorry that you had to see this. The manager says, no, this is great, because now you will send this tape back home. And people everywhere will see it, and they will come, and they will rescue us. And the journalist says, no, that's not going to happen. 
they'll see the video and they'll say, wow, that's terrible. And then they'll go back to eating their dinner. See, it was Western nations that actually created the conflict between the two predominant tribes in Rwanda. And yet this journalist knew, watching the the suffering that their conflict brought upon these people wouldn't even touch the emotion in their heart. It wouldn't have any impact on them. And I am worried that the same thing is happening to me and to us, to God's people Is it concerning that we willingly, uh, are unwilling, excuse me, to admit that we're sinners, that we often don't acknowledge our own failures? Absolutely. But what this shows us should break our hearts even more is that when our sin brings chaos and calamity and suffering to ourselves or to other people, those effects of our sin don't impact us in the least. They don't move, it doesn't move us out of selfishness. It doesn't move us out of pride or out of greed. So my question to you this morning is this, how is your present suffering impacting you? Is it forcing you inward, causing you to circle the wagons, pointing out every single other failure that you see in the world, or is it opening your eyes to the reality that your sin and my sin play a part in breaking God's creation? Stephen, sounds like what you're saying is, now that I've got all this extra time at home because I'm not commuting two hours each day, I should really buckle down and I should work hard to live humbly, to serve other people, to care for others more than I care for myself. That's not the point, but it's not going to be a bad thing if you did that. The the point here is, is not about reform, right? Daniel, at 80-something years old, 70 years into his exile, knew that if he and all the people of Israel suddenly began to obey the covenant, it wouldn't push God's hand into taking them back home, right? He knew that, that their reform would do nothing to solve the problems of the past. Their only hope was if God acted mercifully on their behalf. That's what he says at the beginning of verse three. He says, I pled with God for mercy, And the way that he did that was by repenting, not reforming, repenting. That's exactly what God invites us into today. God invites us to look at the darkness and the chaos and the suffering in the world around us and to be broken by the fact that the sin in your heart has played a role in some way in breaking God's creation. And instead of only trying to do better, to work harder, to be better, to be more loving, he invites us to repent. Now, unlike Daniel, we don't just have to sit around and wait for God to be merciful. We don't just have to sit around and hope that God will fulfill his promises pretty soon. We are able to receive God's grace and his mercy now because of what God has done in the past. Ah, You knew I was going to stick it in there, didn't you? I got the past in here, right? Jesus, who is God, became man, and he lived a perfectly sinless life that you could not live, and he died the death that you and I deserve to die, and he rose again from the dead to set us free from slavery to sin and slavery to death, right? We know for sure that God will do what he says he will do. He will make all things new. He will wipe every tear from our eye. But we also know because of the guarantee of Jesus' death and resurrection that when we repent to God, he meets us with grace and mercy and comfort today. 
Does that mean the suffering and the chaos in the world changes? Not necessarily. But God guarantees grace to you today. So we still hope for what has not yet happened. But in the midst of today, we are broken by the world and by our role in breaking it. And when we repent to God, he meets us with mercy. Let's pray now. Oh God, we do confess to you that we have a hand in breaking your creation. Maybe right now it seems like our role in it is very small. It seems like we are experiencing problems from somewhere else. And yet, oh God, what you tell us in your word is that none of us is innocent. We are all guilty. And yet you invite us to see that you welcome the guilty. You welcome the sinner. You welcome those who are dirty. And you don't just say, sit and maybe I'll clean you up. Sit and maybe I'll forgive you. You say, I clean you now. I forgive you now through the death and resurrection of your son. Oh God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that it is through him we receive your grace and your mercy. And we pray that today our hope would be in that day in the future when you return and you remake all of your creation. You bring us all home to be with you, to dwell with you as your people face to face. We thank you that all of this is secured through Jesus' death and resurrection, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.